Hi, Jackie. Hey, Ramona. I have a question for you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How much do you drink like weekly? Oh my God. Are you allowed to ask me that? (laughs) (laughs) I did not expect that one. Um, well, I'm not going to lie. Well, I might lie a little. Um, so I know when I go to my doctor and they ask you how much you drink a week and they tell you that over seven drinks makes you an alcoholic, I'm probably drinking eight. (laughs) (laughs) And so what do you tell your doctor? I tell her eight, so it sounds believable because it's only one <laughs> over alcoholism. But the reality is, like, two to three glasses of wine in a night when I'm not out with mm-hmm. friends, just to take the edge off and then get that little buzz in my belly, and then I feel calm. But mm-hmm. then I always want another glass. So no, I drink too much. I um, mean, I I don't think this is uncommon. I mean, you and I have talked about this. I myself um, kind of put myself in check recently because through the pandemic, I noticed that I was drinking a lot more than I normally do. Um, and also having a cancer history, you know, I need to be more mindful of those things. And so it got you and I talking about how there seems to be a lot more women drinking these days, or at least (laughs) it feels that way. And we were thinking about how it's almost become socially acceptable to like, joke around about like how much we're consuming well it's it's pushed on us in social media with memes like rosé all day and you know mama's little helper mummy's juice whatever which p.s how do you think your kids feel when they hear that you have to have a numbing agent to get through their childhood (laughs) Uh, which is sort of true but also you know like look at um Look at all the like advertising around alcohol. It's all very lifestyle. It's all like mm-hmm. I'm getting taking a load off. I'm I, I deserve this. I earn this. But the reality is, it's a slippery slope. And through the pandemic, you know, we we talk about alcoholism and and how much women are drinking. It is considered, um, you know, a medical issue for women these days. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost a crisis. Um, but during the pandemic, the average women uh, are drinking increased 37% or something like that. But for women with children under the age of five, and you can picture this in a pandemic, you're at home, your kids can't go anywhere, you can't send them to daycare, you, you can't bring a nanny in, like your husband or your other partner is probably working and you're trying to work and you've got kids. So the increase in women in that category went up almost something like 535%. That's crazy. Yeah. And I mean, it's believable. And so we had a really special guest on this evening, uh, Jovita Bidlowska. Hopefully I pronounced that okay. Um, <laughs> she's a, a fiction writer, a journalist, and she's the author of Drunk Mom, a book in which you and I both read. And it really mm-hmm. resonated with us because... Yovita shares, you know, her story about relapsing into alcohol while parenting a newborn. And although you and I are far past the stage of newborn, it certainly resonated with us. And we asked her to come on and just chat about the challenges that women face and how sometimes it leads to us, you know, reaching for that bottle. 
Absolutely. And I, I do believe like looking at my own lifestyle and everything I do that's outside of the house is focused around alcohol, uh, going out for drinks, going out for dinner, like everything does have that component to it. And it, you know, I read a great quote once that said, it's okay to drink when you're having fun, but when you have a problem is when you drink to have fun. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. That's when you realize, and you should check yourself that you are using alcohol as a crutch. And I don't think the message here is to stop drinking altogether. I think it's, we all have to take a step back and look at our habits, find other ways to cope with stress and anxiety and feeling overwhelmed and use alcohol for what it's meant to be used for. Just like, uh, you know, something you can enjoy. It's, it's a bit of a treat. It shouldn't be an everyday self-medicating tool. Yeah. So, you know, I hope our listeners enjoy this episode. I was just so grateful that Yovida shared her story and was really open and honest about it because I think there is also, you know, we touch on this a little bit um, about, you know, the stigma around women and how like if a woman, if a woman is an alcoholic, like she's sloppy and uncouth, but like a man, he might be funny and silly or whatever. So it was interesting. We had a lot of interesting things to chat about. So Enjoy our conversation with Jovita Bydlowska. So stress and depression related to menopause may trigger the onset of alcohol abuse or worsen established alcohol misuse. It's an interesting fact and very true, isn't it, Jackie? Very true. Both we, jo- <laughs> we joke a lot about drinking sometimes, but we've definitely noticed an increase in the culture of drinking with our peers, particularly in that 40 plus range. And we both read this book called Drunk Mom. And although in your story, you were a new mom, we could both relate to the pressures of motherhood Mm -hmm. and how at times we both reach for that bottle to ease the pressure. So thank you, Jovita, for joining us today. Um, We're super excited to talk about this subject with you. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I I think it's a great subject. I have to say, um, Yovita, when I started your book, because we're doing it for book club, oddly enough, we were going to do it as every book club over wine, but now we're not. I think we'll probably <laughs> we'll probably go for a bike ride, but it's, it started off kind of funny, like not funny, like we're not laughing at you, but but like appreciating what you were going through and relating to it, like those nights, the way you feel after. But then as you, you know, as we get deeper into the book, obviously it becomes perilous and, you know, you start to think, wow, like um, I have to be careful. Like this, this could be a slippery slope. I mean, we, we all use alcohol mostly for the same reasons, but, you know, sometimes it's to numb past pain. Sometimes it's to forget that you're a mom at home going crazy. Mm. It can be anything. It can be stress of a job, but it definitely has become the rosé all day culture with wine. But even like marketers um, and brands are coming after us and integrating it into our lifestyle. Like it's okay. Like we deserve this. And that's pretty negative messaging. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think it's uh, it's negative, but it's also, I, I feel like you're absolutely right with, you know, with sort of this increase of uh, presence of alcohol. Like I've noticed someone posted recently, 
I mean, not recently, a couple of months ago when kids were going back to school um, from online to, you know, one of our lockdowns out of lockdown. And there was a wine and I can't remember that I didn't look it up, but there was a wine uh, at LCBO and there was a poster above it that said um, for moms when kids go back to school, like it was some stupid thing where it was like, you know, now they're now they're back in school and you're at home alone or whatever, doing whatever. Feel free to uh, to have a glass of, of or, you know, 10. So I think it's. um, Yeah, I mean, the, I, yeah, I mean, the messaging is not it's it's all about. Yeah, it's all about giving permission. And it's like you deserve this. You worked really hard or you really stressed or you're really tired. And it seems that we're not giving any other coping mechanisms other than, you know, yeah, a glass of wine or, or it's. Yeah. Well, here's a disturbing number for you. Um, The New York Post um, had an article that said moms with kids under five increased their drinking by 323% after the start of the pandemic. Isn't that crazy? Not surprised. Not surprised. But 323 and and women with kids who are older, um, whose kids are probably more independent, but not totally independent, obviously, their their average drinking went up by 37%. That's a lot. Yeah. I can't lot. imagine drinking 37% more than I already do. Yeah, or, <laughs> yeah that's is, true. Is there that much more wine? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> So I'm curious to know, like, you write a pretty uh, raw... Uh, story you're very vulnerable in your book and I'm curious to know what brought this on like it it's really courageous to share a story like that and know that there's probably people out there reading it and maybe can't relate and are judging you it was it was really vulnerable and raw and I'm curious to know like how like what made you decide to share your story Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, um, first of all, thank you. That's, that's very kind of you. I, I, I like to say that it's, uh, either courageous or stupid. There's a fine line between that, but, um, so I think my motivation originally was, first of all, I, I do, um, consider myself a writer. So I was wrote, uh, when I first moved to Canada at the age of 15, I didn't speak any English. So the way I communicated was through writing in those first, you know, 10 years of learning the new language. So I, that's my sort of primary way of communicating. Um, and with, you know, with drunk mom, particularly the reason why it is so raw and it is so revealing and, you know, lots of people accuse me of exhibitionism and maybe trying to go for the shock value, etc. Um, the reason for that is because I started writing as a fiction, because part of, I think, drinking and, and addiction and secrecy and I, I mean, is is you know you you're in denial and I was definitely in denial during that time and you know walking around with the baby with my laptop and thinking oh I'm gonna write about this you know this woman who drinks and hides she's gonna be like this ordinary villain uh, you know no one you've ever met before meanwhile I'm I'm the person so um, mm-hmm. you know it it became a memoir because I I talked to an agent and he said do you want to you know what's up with this story and I said well this is based on real life and then you know we arrived at this idea that I make this into a memoir so um I think had I set out to write a memoir about that I don't know if I would have been that open and honest um mm-hmm. certainly yeah I don't think I portrayed myself in the most positive light at all uh no and- you were very honest but that's 
the reality of addicts, right? Like, I mean, there is no, (laughs) there's no rosy way of describing when you're in the throes of addiction, right? And the fact that you were vulnerable enough to share some of the realities of that, I think truly is like courageous because other women might be noticing something in themselves that they haven't yeah. been wanting to admit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what I'm trying, like, I, I didn't set out to write, you know, AMMR and Bs, you know, I, it's, it's funny because when I was being Midra trained to do, um, you know, uh, PR after the book came out, I was very strongly encouraged to have this message where I, you know, set out to write this to help other women mm-hmm. uh, to become relatable. And I, you know, 10 years later, I can tell you that that was not the case. That's something that I, you may probably find it in an interview, me saying that, but I just set it out to, you know, write a story and be um, other reasons were sort of more personal. I really, I had a lot of people around me who were constantly asking me why I couldn't stop, why I couldn't, you know, put the glass down, all this stuff. And I thought, well, I have no way of explaining it rather than just writing a whole freaking book about it. So, so here you go. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, trying to explain it to my partner at the time and my sister, I ended up explaining it to a few more people, but, um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, Um, I'm very, I'm just wanted to say like, I, I did not expect uh, that so many people would relate and till this day I get messages like weekly from from women mostly um so that's very it's inter- interesting <clears throat> that when you just described um you know the onset of the book that you described the character as a villain and not a mm-hmm. victim like I just find that interesting oh, because oh. women are vilified for anything they do that is non-maternal or mm-hmm. considered selfish, or we look after ourselves, like, and that's why we feel guilty for mm-hmm. looking, for putting ourselves first in any situation. I mean, you're not a villain if you have a drinking problem or a drug addiction. I mean, it's it's likely due to external factors. Obviously, if your life is all happy and perfect and balanced and you're getting great sleep and everything's mm-hmm. going tickety boo, you're probably not going to drink alcohol every night. Mm-hmm. So it is an issue that, and there's varying degrees of it. Like if you look at um, some of the numbers that they give us, if you have more than two drinks a day or seven a week, which is one glass of wine a day for me, you are considered like you are considered um, an alcoholic. If you have more than something like 21 glasses, you're considered a week. You're considered a binge drinker. Uh It's double for men, but that's not as much as we'd love to jump on the gender gap. That's more about the fact that they can absorb it and um, process it differently than we can. But, you know, we thought, we know this is going to be a touchy subject because we're going to be totally honest about it. We we have our own fears about the fact that we become more and more reliant on our wine at the end of the day or whatever it is. And there are times I question. I mean, I look around and it's a challenge to see if anyone can go a week without a drink. It's just like, and now with the pandemic, we're saying, well, why would you do that to yourself? You have kids yeah. at home. Like, why add to the stress? But the thing is, it makes you feel worse and it 
it increases your anxiety and depression. So mm-hmm. we're actually really doing the opposite of what we should be doing for ourselves during these times when we need to be healthy and focused. Yeah. But I think, I mean, you know, none of us had a, you know, with the pandemic, we, we didn't have an instruction manual, right? So like, what do you, what do you do with all those hours and with the boredom and every day is the same and it's, you know, we're going through this collective experience, like all together. So it's, um, you know, when you read those numbers and I said, I wasn't surprised, I wasn't surprised because I read, um, uh, you know, in the States, they have a opioid epidemic, of course, mm-hmm. and the numbers are something like 400, uh, 400% more people are, you know, there's entire, towns they're completely empty because people are you know dying out from this second pandemic which is addiction it's not you know alcohol is one thing and there's we all have all kinds of addictions you know i have friends who um you know shop online excessively like i i i'm doing all my groceries on like it's just so we're trying to find something to you know quell our anxiety and we don't have a lot of tools like that like what do we have really it's you know yeah there's only so much netflix you can watch so. <laughs> i've actually finished netflix, finished netflix. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe yeah. the internet <laughs> but i definitely noticed in myself like during the pandemic there was a moment where i stopped and looked inward and realized that uh, I had hit a wall that I had been drinking every single day for probably a year for that first year of the pandemic, that it was Mm -hmm. just, it became like a comfort, like Mm -hmm. every day, you know, at the end of the day, I was reaching for a glass of wine, but that glass Mm -hmm. of wine usually turned into two or three. And it was someone like for someone like me who usually never drank through the week and I'd share wine with friends like on the weekend or whatever, I was noticing a change in my drinking habits to Mm. the point where I had to have like an honest conversation with myself and stop and went Mm. dry for like months. So I'm interested to hear about like what, like I know you have an opinion on sobriety and what that means to different women. Can you share that? Yeah, I mean, uh, um, I don't know if I have an opinion. My opinion is kind of ever evolving. Um, so I I think that, um, yeah, it's interesting. I don't think sobriety is abstinence because, you know, if you go with this sort of 12-step model, um, you know, abstinence is sobriety, sobriety is abstinence, but there's, there's a lot more to sobriety and I think a lot more to, um, like I find it use, interesting that you use the word dry I went dry too like we have all these sort of sayings but I think that the proper word the one that I like is recovery because we're sort of recovery is ongoing you don't have to say I'm sober or I'm drunk or I'm an alcoholic like even labels are just never good and I find that if you say I'm in recovery you don't have to tell people what, what you're in recovery from um but certainly you know with with I don't know. I feel that as women, we do have some extra challenges when it comes to recovering, because as you pointed out, you know, victim villain, this idea that, you know, um, like if it, I don't know, even this thing where, when, you know, a guy is drunk, he's fun, he's drunk, you know, drunk Mm -hmm. dad, but like drunk dad is a funny dad. Like drunk mom is more like a tragic sort of, you know, sad figure. Sloppy. Yeah. Yes. Secretive, sure. unsexy, gross, like everything about it is just like not cool. So, mm-hmm. um, and so I find it with women, like being able to talk about it and have these open conversations and not even, 
I don't know, because there's also this model of saying like, you know, with again, with 12 steps, um, you know, I've been sober for three years or five years or 17 days or whatever it is. Like I find those milestones are also not very helpful because you end up sort of mm-hmm. comparing yourself. We have enough comparing in our world, mm-hmm. like compare about every single thing possible. So, you know, comparing the days that you don't drink um, with another person, I don't think that's very helpful. Um so right now, I, I, I don't know, my, my biggest thing with sobriety and with staying in recovery is connecting. So, and what I mean by that, just having conversation, having these talks, um, you know, reading literature, communicating with people, being as open and as honest as you can be, because not everyone wants to be or can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it doesn't mean going to meetings or going to on naltrexone medication or something like that it's it's really it's cheesy because i was writing this um i was writing this piece for chatelaine recently and like 10 years later and i thought like i don't really have any wisdom over those 10 years like i my only wisdom is like you know having supportive people around you and and being able to connect and i think it's great that that you are both so honest about your drinking like it's you know I've, i've i've talked to you can totally edit this out, but I remember talking to a journalist uh, when my book came out and she was super critical. She was, uh, she wrote one of the most sort of devastating pieces that came out and I was new to it all. So I was like, I didn't know what to do with myself when it came out. And years later, I found out that she died from alcohol related disease. So interesting. she interviewed me with a straight face, you know, sort of like, luxury and very very you know judgmental and meanwhile she's you know drinking herself to death probably or mm-hmm. or not i don't know um so it was really that was really illuminating and i i didn't feel anything but you know compassion and sympathy for her because i thought she must be in some environment that tells her that she has to hide her own stuff and then mm-hmm. yeah so i don't know you probably scared her talking about it yeah i mean it was probably like yeah she she probably i'm sure she saw that yeah and not only that um you know vita think about other people responding to your book and the topic and those who read it through might respond about the story and how you were portrayed it might scare them into like other people saying wow she was you know really drunk or um out of control and they don't want that stigma so they hide Mm -hmm. it more uh, yeah. We have enough stigmas that we have to deal with as women. Yeah. But I think about that because um, when we think about like, what are the pro- what is the problem with drinking too much? We think of liver disease. We think of our brain. We think of, I don't know, gaining weight, just generally being unwell. Um, and also the way we role model to our children. Mm-hmm. Um, but what like what we don't talk about is the fact that um, Four percent, I think it is, of uh, new breast cancer cases every year are um, linked to alcohol consumption. And I read that, I don't know if this will ever change, but someone was saying they should be putting on the labels of all alcohol that the substance you're drinking um, is, or sorry, the substance 80% of us drink on a regular mm-hmm. basis is carcinogenic. Like. Mm-hmm. 70% of Canadians are unaware of that. I'm definitely in the 70%. I mean, I, I have heard of links to cancer, but, you know, if we start to think about what alcohol does to us beyond 
our perceptions others have of us or how we handle things or hangovers or whatever, if we really look at what it's doing to our health, it's really quite square, scary. Like it's a, you know, it's a slow death if we don't take care of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, that that's like, that's certainly one thing. And I found for my, like for me, when I was getting all, because I, I didn't say, I stayed sober for quite some time after the book came out. I did relapse. Um, I'm also very open about that because, and then, and then again, the word relapse, like that's the sort of 12 step word, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I, mm -hmm. you know, things happen and I went through separation and I drank, like all kinds of things happen. And it's just uh, sort of sitting in that guilt and shame and all this stuff is very unproductive. But I find too that this, I don't know. I just sort of seeing alcohol. Yeah, sorry, I, I lost my train of thought. But I thought too. I wonder if. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wonder if it uh, if it was so harmful to men if we would have labels maybe on bottles. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of those things. I mean, I don't know the stats, and maybe Jackie, since you're full of them, you might know. But like, <laughs> in terms of like the numbers between men and women in alcoholism like what the stats are there like is is then are the numbers higher with women i don't I'm i can look i'm sure we can get that number but i do find it interesting like how much more it takes for a man to be impacted by alcohol so mm -hmm. like the amount that we're allowed allowed to have a week before we're considered an alcoholic and let's face it at that number everyone I know is an alcoholic, except for my kid, she's too young, but <laughs> everyone is an alcoholic at seven drinks a week. And, but I think men take longer, they can, they can absorb it quicker and metabolize it quicker. So they probably get off scot-free because it takes them so long and they metabolize so quickly that it takes them like 46 drinks a week or something. But it's, um, it's interesting though, that, um, you know, when you think about someone being an alcoholic and you think about hiding bottles like you had mentioned in your story and hiding it hiding this the telltale signs i also think you know women in our community in our age group by community i mean in our age group going through this sort of perimenopause menopause phase we're hiding it but we're hiding it in a different way we're not hiding our bottles but we are hiding it by saying things to our friends like, oh, I'll just have one. I haven't had a drink in a couple of days. Meanwhile, you know, they have like we're we're the fact that we are hiding it that way. The fact that we feel some sort of shame of saying, sure, I'll have a glass. I already had a bottle last night. What's another like mm -hmm. we we know it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Like when you lie about something, it's because, you know, it's a problem. Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like hiding it out in the open. Right. And then you also I mean, it's interesting that you're, you know, yes. So in my story, I do hide bottles and there's all this, you know, that that's like 50 percent of my addiction is drinking. And the, the other 50 is secrecy. That's really mm -hmm. what the addiction is. It's, mm -hmm. it's just, you know, this ritual. It's a ritual, like what I'm doing. Um, yeah. So, you know, someone would read my book and, and she would say, well, I'm, I'm not that person. I don't have my bottles, you know, or maybe my husband drinks as much as I do. And it's like, and it kind of goes unnoticed for a long time because, you know, to, when I wrote my book and when I used to go to AA meetings and I would tell my story or various versions of it, but some parts of, the, of my story, my story was nowhere near the most shocking one. Like my story was kind of like on the mild end of, you know, like, like an average, I mean, add, add baby to the mix, it's probably somewhat shocking, but 
I mean, and, and you know, you, you've asked me in your email about 12-step uh, meetings, so I can talk about them a lot. I mean, the one thing about them was that there were people from absolutely every walk of life and mm-hmm. wherever they came from, whether they, you know, lived in, I don't know, housing or in a mansion and whatever job they had, uh, there was there was just no any weird correlation with how they drank because you you would have you know women who had had their children taken away who mm-hmm. lived in a big house in Rosedale and then you would have someone who you know thought that she was maybe binge drinking because she was getting drunk on Saturday so it's like it's all over the place but the the point is that I think it's um you know with with memoir sort of reading like my memoir or anybody else's memoir thinking oh i'm not that bad because i'm not doing what she's doing mm-hmm. yet maybe yet. Mm-hmm. yeah So we're just going to take a little break and talk about some issues with aging skin and our skin care and a new product that we've tried. Since we began this journey, we've talked about the healing properties of cannabis and how it's helped both Ramona and I. So we were really excited to hear about Imagine Mercer, Modern Apothecary. Absolutely. Imagine Mercer was created out of an authentic need to address a myriad of common issues women, in particular those over 40, face like stress, chronic pain, sleepless nights, and break brain fog. All of the fun stuff, Jack. (laughs) Their products are designed to seamlessly integrate into a woman's wellness regime and self-care toolkit. Yeah, and each and every ingredient is well-considered and hardworking, resulting in a selection of restrained yet purposeful cannabis-infused products designed for women. I love that this takes into account, Ramona, that like women's skin, like aging skin is one thing, Mm -hmm. but women's aging skin is different, you know, especially because of our hormones and everything that's happening. So these ingredients are premium and plant-based and functional. And the packaging, which I love, is so minimal and in some cases, not all, but mostly recyclable. The packaging is so beautiful. I love it. I have the Alevio Menta. I think that's how you say it. (laughs) Their THC vape pen with this delightful minty eucalyptus flavor, which is great if you don't like the taste of cannabis. There are no solvents or other icky stuff that you find in other vapes, which was super important to me. Yeah, I love that pen. I have to tell you, I keep it in Mm -hmm. my purse. I also have their uh, CBD Meadow Foam Seed Facial Serum. Um, This one is intentionally formulated to help target like redness and puffiness and dryness and all the fun things that come with aging skin. Mm -hmm. And I don't have the redness as much, but I definitely have the puffiness and the dryness. Um, I was actually surprised because it's super light on my skin Mm -hmm. and it left it like so soft, but it wasn't greasy. And it's got this like that really like citrusy, like that refreshing aroma. So it was it felt and it smelled (laughs) great. Um, But I also love the Lacoma lemongrass and ginger CBD oil Um, that tastes nice and citrusy. And I felt great once it kicked in. I was so relaxed. I took it right before bed, read my book and had an amazing sleep. So Imagine Mercer is on a mission to remove the stigma around cannabis and educate women on all things cannabis and wellness on their socials. Madge loves blog and through various events. Check them out at www.madgeandmercer.com. And I think when, you know, we have these 
mom's night out. Um, yeah. It's funny because even like the mom's night out and I'm one of them. It's like, we just got let out of a cage. Like we're drinking and drinking and drinking. Like we have no kids tomorrow to wake up to. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's this sort of like, oh my God, I have like tonight, I am not a mom, not a wife. I'm just a girl at a bar having fun with my girlfriends and there's safety in numbers because everyone's doing it. So if I mean, I, I would say, and I should be the last person to be able to say this, but I would say that, you know, once in a while, I think it's totally okay. I mean, it, mm -hmm. you, you know, we can't all be doing yoga and going for bike rides after a book club. I think <laughs> it's super, yeah, I think it's super fun to go out. And I, and I certainly, a lot of my drinking was because of nostalgia and I loved okay. going out and I was quite a successful party girl in my, in my days. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I went to, um, Poland last summer and it's a very very you know a lot of drinking there for sure there's mm -hmm. you know I think every single person there qualifies as an alcoholic <laughs> um but it's like it's I think it's once we demonize it and once we vilify it's that's when it gets kind of tricky that's when it gets scary I think mm -hmm. um I, I just I just don't want to like you know how do you beat up, beat yourself up because you go out once in a while? Because I think that's totally no. Cool. I th I think it's just <laughs> that we find every excuse to yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I live in a community where we're all within walking distance of each other. Yeah. It's like you walk out your front door and it's an open bar yeah. and, and then add summer <laughs> in and then add COVID and kids. Like you have kids, right? You can't leave the street. You can't go out for dinner. So you hang out you see someone out on the street on a beautiful day. Their kids are out, your kids out, you bring a glass of wine out or a beer or whatever. Yeah. So, and even though it's not a big drinking night, it's just, it's a habit like it be, like you said it's a ritual oh yeah. i go out on the street i have a glass of wine and yeah. it feels sort of foreign to go out there with a glass of perrier a lemon like it yeah. just it's not what i do yeah. and this is sort of my it's the end of the day i can i can breathe again but um it is it's tough because like i think to your point earlier it's it's moderation it's knowing how yeah. to be able to just have enough or you know limit yourself and not every occasion is like for me yay i made it through wednesday mm -hmm. oh time for a glass of wine <laughs> like mm -hmm. not every day is an occasion but mm -hmm. do you have any um tips that helped your advice that helped you to sort of like for those who haven't read the book, I don't want to say anything yeah. about the book. Um, but do you have any advice for women, like when to recognize? And I think the big fear for women is they don't want to stop drinking altogether. Yeah. Um, but they know they have a problem. And this is one thing with our groups of friends that we really don't talk about. And I think mm -hmm. we need to start talking about it. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, I don't have any advice, I have suggestions, but I think that's one suggestion is talking about it is, because um, let's say, I don't know, let's say you have 10 women in your group and four of them are really worried and maybe want to stop, stop drinking for summer or something like, mm -hmm. and right there you have a tiny community. So you have two communities. So, you know, those girls are going to, you know, come out with their prayers and the other ones are going to go out and um, sort of without judgment, just being able to, you know, accept one another and, and make sure that, yeah, they do talk, they connect. Um, I mean, it's, it, 
it just boggles my mind how like how well we can know someone for how many years and how much time we can spend with them and have no idea what's going on in their lives you know mm-hmm. I have a friend recently who just went through really awful mental health scare and I have known her for 20 years and I I would never be able to tell you know she just came out and told me all these horrible things and we were just kind of uh, grieving the fact that we don't have that sort of openness and that you know that we're we feel so ashamed especially when it comes to mental health and when it comes mm-hmm. to shame and everything or even recovering like you know like because I think it takes guts to be that one woman with like you know I'm just drinking lemonade today and all your mm-hmm. friends are drinking everything yeah. else or whatever um, and I think for that reason I places like AA meetings are successful because that's where, you know, you have a community of other non-drinkers. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. anything, it fulfills that social aspect of, of being with people because you, you know, we used to go out for dinners, we would go to movies, we would go to, you know, uh, camping, like all kinds of things. So you, you manage to find, you know, your people. And I think that's, um, yeah, I think that's a big one. I mean, even if it's just another woman, like if you talk to someone and she says, you know, I, I'm I'm thinking of stopping for a couple of days, like just have your non-drinking buddy and, and see how that goes. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, and it, it is based on sponsorship. So there's usually a sponsor and she has sponsees. So it's kind of like mentor and mentorships and they keep each other accountable. And I think that's, you know, it, that's a very successful model. So mm-hmm. um I think doing it on your own is really hard. That's that's the hardest. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, the one thing that you touched on with the pandemic, I mean, one of very few positive things that came out of the pandemic was I think the dialogue around mental health mm-hmm. um, right. increased and there was less stigma because people were struggling through this oh, yeah. and are still struggling. And, yeah. you know, I've had people in my family before COVID that struggled with mental health that I've been very open about mental health and, you know, going to therapy myself and, and trying to take care of my brain and all of those things, because I think there is such a huge stigma around that. But I think with the pandemic, it really shone a light on the fact that yeah. we, we need each other. All of us need human beings need other human beings and being isolated yes. for that long really brought that out in all of us. And some of us did turn to things that maybe helped us feel better during that time, whether it's alcohol or drugs or food or video games or whatever, you, whatever the addiction is. And I think it just got Jackie and I thinking about, you know, all of those things that we sort of grasp to that maybe aren't the healthiest options for us, whether it be alcohol or those other things and how the importance of, of needing each other and being close to one another is really what's going to help you survive all of this. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I love that you're saying that. I love, because it is true that, that now, now it's not unpopular to say I'm, I'm struggling with my mental health. Like it's finally, you know, that's what it took to get us here. And it's sad. And I, you know, I have friends who I've lost to suicide, like, oh, really horrible things over the past two years. And yeah, um, it's funny, you know, how Facebook gives you those, like your memories from like two yeah. years ago, one of those. So I, I one popped up today that I, where I said, hopefully this will, um, 
call, some, something about getting more resources for mental health. So I thought it's funny because here we are two years later. So we have more people admitting to struggling with mental health, but we don't have more resources at oh. all. We don't. We we're don't. Still, we're and... still in the same place. We're still, you know, uh, you guys are doing podcasts to help women deal with, you know, perimenopause and mental health aspects and physical. Why isn't there like a government initiative to help with that? Like, why don't we have, you know, I'm, I'm not an activist by all, any means, but I just think it's ridiculous that we still treat mental health as if it's like an afterthought where mm-hmm. all of us are equally depressed <laughs> or not. I don't know. I think right. that, you know, they say that we're all on the spectrum somewhere. I think mental health is like that. I think we all have some issue with mental health. It just comes out at different times mm-hmm. or at different severities. Um, I want to go back to one thing you said, you talked about relapse. And I think that part of the problem we have with topics like this that are stigmatic, that are shame, shame people, they're shameful, um, is the language that we use around them. And, you know, we all have kids. I think about, you know, when you're trying to raise your child um, to be positive and work hard, you use this very empowering language. You talk about the fact that it's not a failure. You have to fail to learn. Although the word failure in itself is just so negative, but you have to make mistakes. Mistakes are there to teach you. But as adults, we don't apply that same thinking. We use words like relapse, which indicates a failure when really, you know, like it's, it's like a diet, you know, as soon as you tell someone you fell off or you did this, they just think, well, hell, I'll just start all like, I'll either start, I have to start over and it's too overwhelming. I just can't be bothered. But maybe if we just talk about things like this is all part of the process, part of the game, um, then, then we won't feel like we screwed up and we can't get back on this in the saddle. I just think part of the problem is the language and the way we make people feel about their progress. Yeah, I feel I feel too like I had, you know, when when we I had a lot of readers write to me sort of curious to know how did how are you now? You know, it's like uh, and it's interesting because I for that those reasons, I, um, you know, I, I, I would never reply and, and divulge my secrets because I would be like, this is it's good enough that you have the book. But but it's the interesting idea that I myself felt so terribly guilty and responsible because I had relapse and I felt like, you know, people went and spend, you know, 20 or 30 dollars buying this stupid book, reading it. And here I am relapsing on them. So, no. But then I thought uh, it took me a really long time to be like, I'm not a Disney movie. I didn't just end with a happy ending and went off to like live with my prince. Things got quite dark. <laughs> totally. Um, and, and, but I'm like, but that also should be part of conversation and, and this idea that, you know, uh, but yeah, the narrative of a book is one thing. And, and we, I know that when people write to ask me, they're looking for something, they're looking for the thing that they can apply to themselves. They're like, what did you do? How did, but the, yeah. the truth is, is there is no thing. I mean, I know people who've been sober as in non-drinking for 30 years and mm-hmm. they're doing it, you know, in their way and that's fine. But it's not it's not one size fit all. So that's, absolutely. That's- Do you feel like like I have to ask as a woman, did you feel you were judged more because you were a woman in a situation like this or because you were a mom? Did you ever feel that at all? Yeah, no, there was I mean, certainly um, 
Yeah, so it's interesting because, you know, we like in Canada, we have maternity leave. So I was on a paid maternity leave. So I found that like U.S. readers were like, oh, she's this, you know, small, rich lady who has no, um, you know, where's her money coming from? All she does is go walks and <laughs> your pittance from the government. <laughs> I know. You know, I'm I'm getting eighty percent of my nonprofit paycheck. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but uh, so that was that was kind of that. But then, um, oh yeah, there were. I mean, even I think the first profile that came out was in the Globe and Mail, and it was uh, like one quarter of it was about what I was wearing and my appearance. And I just thought, would you ever say this about a male writer? Right, like. That no, didn't even happen, and and it was a woman who did it, so it's it's fine. But, uh. it, because, but I'm sure she, you know she's written a memoir as well. So I'm thinking someone's probably done it to her. Like we just perpetuate this this stupidity mm-hmm. where absolutely women are are judged completely differently. And and the fact that I'm a mom, but I'm like, did people notice that there was a dad as well? Like has anyone exactly like, like yeah. uh, you know this this idea? And I I'm not gonna say anything bad about him but i'm like this was you know it was a 50 50 partnership like uh mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. <laughs> that is a Absolutely. sad statement because it's very true and i noticed especially during covid like when kids would go to school and if if like a kid went in and shouldn't have gone in or this happened or this happened everyone automatically blamed the mom yeah, yeah. where the hell's the dad he's 50 percent, and like he'll He'll claim that 50% in court, but not in day-to-day life. <laughs> like, yeah. what the hell? But I, it is the thing. Like, women, I argue this all the time because, you know, when you're working for yourself and you need the support of other women and not even working for yourself, women should be supporting women in business and community uh-huh. because we need to make more seats at the table. But I don't find that that's necessarily what women do. And sometimes like in menopause, women are actually the worst offenders of each other. They, and and I do feel like it goes back to um, the woman you talked about who eventually passed away from an alcohol related illness. It strikes a fear in people when we talk about these things and they don't want to relate to it. So they get angry, like fear, Mm-hmm. The most common reaction to fear is anger. Mm-hmm. And then that's when people say nasty things and, and totally mm-hmm. inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I always struggled through my whole life with how girls or women treated other women or treated me throughout, like, you know, growing up to adulthood until I became a parent. And then for some reason, something switched with me being a mom and my first child is a girl. Mm-hmm. And suddenly for me anyway, I I had so much compassion for other women, I think because I finally realized like how hard it is to be a woman once you're a mom and you're, you're working and then if you've got a partner and you're navigating that and then all the pressures that we have as women mm-hmm. that when I looked at the division of labor in my household between myself and my partner Mm -hmm. um and I just I was overcome with the pressure and really needed other women to support me and that's where I really fell in love with 
my friends and the women that I work with and the, you know, my nanny or the, the woman at the daycare or whoever and realize that we are stronger and better together than when we are pulling each other apart. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. I mean, let's, um, again, feel free to edit this out, but I mean, the, one of the things that I, uh, so there's another writer, her name is, and also Johnson, and she wrote a book called Drink, uh, and it's about women and drinking. So it's part memoir, part nonfiction about, um, you know, culture of, of female drinking, I guess. So she and I have been talking about it, and, you know, we, uh, she's also getting a lot of messages from readers and, and, you know, we've, we've both been through AA and all kinds of other programs. And uh, so we, you know, we thought we would start something. So we, we haven't launched it yet. Uh, uh, but specifically with that sort of idea that, you know, it's, it would be maybe not a community. Like I think we're going to start with sort of talks and then just being able to exchange resources and literature and things like that but this idea of helping each other you know like when you're asking me what advice do you have for about sobriety so this is like you know you hear this from me but if you interview 10 other women who have substance use disorder they're probably going to give you nine other ideas and I think I'm like we should share all this because this is like absolutely this, this is important this is treasure no one should be hoarding this like information or advice and um because I'm curious to know like you know, the woman who has been sober for 30 years and went through maybe divorce and God knows what else, like, how did she do it? Like, why don't I know? I should know. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. I really love that idea of this group. I hope you'll keep us posted and we'd love to share, do whatever we can. But what I really like about that is um, you say in your book that you love stories. And I think women, the reason you know, social media influencers are big for women is because they don't want to buy a product that a brand is pushing at them. They want to buy a product that another woman talks about, raves about, you can feel it in her voice, that she trusts this, that it worked for her, and then you're going to go and get that product. And I feel like if I'm going to reveal myself and say, I think I have a drinking problem, I don't want someone to send me you know, top five resources for drunk moms. I want to sit and listen to stories. I want to hear about other people's journeys and pick little pieces of each that I can relate to so that I think that this is a really smart idea. Yeah. And women need this resource. Yeah. I I think it's because also, you know, especially for people who really kind of want to go on this sobriety journey, like this idea Oh, having to go to meetings, having to do the steps, having to read this and that, like it, it can be so overwhelming that they will just either never start or, you know, uh, drink the first week and decide, oh, this is not for me. I can't do it. And it's just it's just too much. Like it's it's way, mm-hmm. way too overwhelming. I think it's, again, totally cool for some people. But for some of us, I mean, I, I hung on to for dear life. I stayed sober, you know, when I first went for four years like so it was quite a long time but I was not comfortable at all I was I was very you know uh, scared and didn't feel safe there or anything like that so that's interesting the safety component can you say anything about that well I mean I you know the whole idea of 12 it's it's a it's based on a book written by 99 men and one woman Okay. So, called the big book. 
And is that all you need to know? Should I go? Pretty much. I think I got it. (laughs) But I've also, I was curious because I, when you're talking about um, this community that you're embarking on, um, it, it did make me think about, you know, I've not had to navigate AA, but from what I hear from through other people that it is like a very old, old way or old approach to things. And I was curious why no one has ever tried to revamp the system and modernize it and even modernize it in a way that maybe, maybe works better, you know, having different groups for women and different groups for men, because sobriety, I think is, comes part and parcel with what the pressures and things that are going on in your life. Um, and those things are very different between men and women or, or, you know, uh, transgendered or like whoever in the community and to have an opportunity to really focus in on those key areas or those key groups of people, I wonder if people would be more successful with their sobriety, mm-hmm. if it wasn't just this blanketed approach. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the, so that the big book came out in uh, 1939. So that gives you an idea of how outdated. Yeah. Um, now, because we do evolve, people do evolve and within those meetings. So certainly some of the language, like it's some of the language. So there's a chapter in the book called To the Wives, which is specifically written as if, you know, the only people with the drinking problem were men. And this chapter to the wives kind of tells these women how to be nice to their guy, essentially. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but so, uh. it's, so it is outdated. But the thing about AA is that there, there are groups of young people. There are groups for just for women only. There are uh, LGBTQ groups. Uh, there's also agnostic AA because AA has a huge um, religious component to it. Mm-hmm. So that yes, I think that, heard that. a lot of people decide, oh, this is really not for me, but you do have agnostic meetings. The really, really good thing about AA or meetings or any groups in general is that they, they give you structure, they give you something to do, you have homework. So all that you know, empty time that you would normally fill with drinking or thinking about drinking or waiting in front of a liquor store, like I used to, wondering if you should go in or not, you can go to a meeting or you can call someone and you have, you have stuff to do. Like this is, boredom yeah. is a huge, huge, like, part of you know of of addiction and 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 anything you know any any stupid thing that we do uh so i don't want to talk badly about it because i think it does work in terms of like Mm. how well it's structured and how you know anywhere in the world you can go and find a meeting like it's yeah and and it's it's going to be a similar meeting similar format similar steps similar people similar stories so it's it's great for that uh but certainly as it is with anything else, like with groups of friends or school or work, you kind of have to find your own group and you will find it. Like, I mean, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question about, well, not a question, just a comment. When you were saying that the book was written in 1939 and it's like how to please your man, sorry, slash <laughs> how to help your man. Yeah. It sounds like they don't think women have any care in the world because what possible care can we have that could be as equal or stressful as a man. Therefore, why would we have a drinking problem? But I read somewhere like quite some time ago that 
in as early days as like the settlers coming to Canada, women were drinking this horrible swill in their like cabins in the middle of nowhere when the men were out doing whatever the men were doing because they were trying to like forge and make food and deal with kids around the house and they were stressed the hell out and they were drinking bootleg stuff. So women and alcoholism is like an age old problem. We just don't talk about it. We talk about, it almost feels new, you know, like, oh, women just started drinking a lot. No, they didn't. They just, they just weren't allowed. It wouldn't have been acceptable back then. And, and then in the 1930, whatever, when the book was written, I mean, women were seen, not heard (laughs) along with the kids. Yeah. Yeah, It's a, it's a pretty old topic. Yeah, I mean, it makes you think, you know, when you, even when you read in fiction or there's this whole narrative with, you know, mom being always tired and lying in a room with the blinds closed and like, yeah. what was that mom really up to? Like, what was she, she was up? wasted. <laughs> <laughs> she roseed all day. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, even, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, that's cool. I'm going to look that up. That's an interesting fact. So, <laughs> okay. I have to try and find it. I swear I didn't make yeah. it up. Um, <laughs> no, no, I believe you. <laughs> but I wanted to um, just sort of like bring this to menopause because there is some interesting connections. Uh, women tend to drink more uh, when they are in perimenopause and menopause than they might have in the years before. Um, they, they feel that there is a direct correlation with the depression and anxiety that can come with um, some of those symptoms that they are using, you know, there's, we're self-medicating. I would say that is absolutely true of me. And unless like I used to party a lot, but I wasn't uh, come home after work and have a drink person. I was like, Mm -hmm. Oh, we're going out and I can have a drink. But um, there, yeah, there has been a noticeable difference. And in fact, it's become a public health crisis that women mm-hmm. are having these drinking problems. But the problem is, you know, just because we aren't, maybe we don't have small babies is that drinking during this time can actually cause bigger problems. Like as we're trying to battle, you know, uh, weight gain, um, depression and anxiety and sleep. And we're worried about losing our collagen because, and we, we have less estrogen, which protects our uterus and our heart. Adding alcohol to that mix is really nasty. And I hate saying that because I love my wine, but, um, you know, alcohol turns into an accelerant. So there goes your sleep. Uh, it breaks down collagen. Uh, we don't even need to talk about the calories and what that does to you. So it can also, um, contribute to different cancers, which we are more susceptible to. And, um, definitely what is disturbing for me is I have high cholesterol and alcohol can uh, impact heart disease and heart health and also contributes to irreversible bone mass. So we lose our bone density and it's like drinking is speeding up our aging, if you think about it. So not to scare the hell out of everybody, but you should be scared. (laughs) Yeah, right. I'm certainly... I mean, I, I noticed too that, you know, the few times, like, I guess more recently too, it would take me so long to recover. And like, and I, you know, I haven't drank, like binge drank in a very, very long time, but even, I mean, I, I'm trying to remember the time, but like even having 
I don't know, two glasses of wine or something. Like it's like it's a production the next day. It's 24 mm-hmm. hours. Oh yeah. I I can't. I don't. You know, as I said, I had COVID, and I compare it to like a bad day on COVID. Like it's just not. <laughs> it's not. It's not an easy bouncing back or or any of that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, um, which is kind of. I mean. In a way, it's a good thing too because you, you know, anything that Slow may down a bit, yeah. <laughs> so, it's yeah. true, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I have a friend who um, was telling me that she was trying to slow down her wine consumption nightly, um, and that, and that's, you know, once once everything's done and dinner's cleaned up, if you're not a big TV watcher and I can't read a book early in the evening or I'll fall asleep and you're not working, what do you do? So she has taken to um, coloring, adult coloring books and um, paint by number Mm -hmm. to keep her really focused. And it's really cathartic. Like I'm trying to, I know a few women I've talked to, we're trying to find ways to not always be drinking. Mm -hmm. No, there's lots of, I mean, I'm I'm a pretty creative person. I, I write for a living, but I found that like, I used to do a lot of art. So one of the little silly things I did is I have an iPad with a um, Apple pen and I started doing these cartoons and drawing like it's really you know it's as as simple as it gets but whatever keeps your attention like just to distract yourself I think that's that's really good and now it's warm so we can we can garden I don't know yes <laughs> that's <Yeah>. too <laughs> that's true except for the snow we're getting this weekend but that's okay are we oh no no I didn't say that I didn't say that I feel like the whole voice of doom through the whole podcast but I do think that it's it's an important discussion I'm really glad that you were so candid with us and Ramona and I agreed you know we were gonna um share dirty laundry here because why not i you know maybe other women will start to think about it too and say maybe i'm not in a dangerous place right now but i could be soon you know if i don't stop this and i don't find a new routine and i don't think about the consequences to my health and you know this could be a dangerous path for all of us and i think it's time for us to sort of wake up and break this this relationship with drinking um i and think talk to each other talk about it yeah Yeah. it's uh, everything in moderation and i think when you tell people you have to cut cold turkey it scares them and they'll never do it but you can still have a glass of wine here and there it just doesn't have to be the only thing you do and it you know even saying that depresses me but (laughs) (laughs) i mean i know you didn't go out when you wrote this book i know you didn't go out with trying to um I don't know, help women or any of that. But I think, I think it was really important that you did this. I think that it will have a lot of women who read this book look inward and think about their relationship with alcohol. Um, so I appreciate that you were so candid and thank you for joining us today. And thanks so um, much for having me. Yeah. Super fun.